0: Today's guest is a returning guest, an internationally acclaimed leader in patient safety who has distinguished himself nationally and internationally with his groundbreaking work around saving lives, improving patient safety, and improving both the quality and value of health care. He is Dr. Peter Pronovost. His life-saving clinical practices have yielded dramatic improvements in hospitals across the United States and around the world, including the development of a scientifically proven method for reducing the deadly infections associated with central line catheters. He was formerly the director of Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality at Johns Hopkins, as well as a practicing anesthesiologist and critical care specialist physician at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Currently, Peter is Chief Clinical Transformation Officer right here in Cleveland, Ohio at University Hospitals there's so much more to know about him and we have an expanded bio at our website speakupandstayalive.com but right now I'm looking forward to learning more so welcome back to the show Peter.
1: Uh, Pat it's great to be back with your show so important and impressive so thanks for having me. I
0: appreciate that and welcome to Cleveland.
1: Yes thank you. <laughs> neighbors now.
0: I know we are neighbors. So before we get into some of the patient safety issues what does it mean to be the chief clinical transformation officer?
1: Yes it's quite a Title and what it means, Pat, quite simply, is health care has a system that typically pays people for the volume of services. So if you're readmitted, like a patient, Helen, who had heart failure and was readmitted five times or 10 times, every one of those readmissions fills your hospital bed and in the old fee-for-service model, you get paid for them and they're counted as good. We're trying to evolve now to one more focused on value. And what that simply means is that we have to view success as having people be healthy at home not healing in the hospital. And how do we do that? Well, as you might suggest, Pat, we made a checklist of defects and value, and we are systematically seeking to eliminate those in our university health system.
0: Very interesting. So does this allude to population health as well? Yeah, that's exactly right. It is
1: population health. And, you know, that term is used um quite often. And the way I think about it, the way we're thinking about it here is at university hospitals, we treat four distinct populations. And each of them, we have varying roles and responsibility. Uh, we care for those we employ. We provide insurance for them in healthcare. We care for those we insure, that is those patients in our ACO, that we have some risk for with their outcomes. We're responsible for those we provide care to, even in the fee-for-service model, and we're responsible for those we live with, our community members, whether or not we provide care, but as an anchor institution in this great community, we have responsibilities for them also.
0: It's an interesting word because I think some people misconstrue it as to what it means. Where maybe you're treating or caring for a population as a group rather than the patient as an individual. That's some of the comments I've heard out when I do yeah my y- work. Y- yeah, and it is
1: a uh, a complicated term. You know
0: what it means,
1: or but you're, you're you or your audience really has some keen insights in. The fee-for-service model are those who we provide care for just transactionally uh, and often reactively. We don't have longer-term data to see if they are staying healthy at home or how many times they're going to any other hospital or admission or emergency department or uh, suffering complications over time. But for the ones we employ and for those we insure, for those populations, we have data for their healthcare outcomes and utilization over time. So we. Could What we're trying to do, Pat, is create what we call this web of well-being to make sure those we're responsible for stay within our university health systems because we've put great controls to ensure they get the highest quality, the safest care so that we could navigate them and make sure to the extent possible uh, they avoid coming to the hospital or the emergency department.
0: And one of the demographics you mentioned before was you are to care for your employees, for the folks who work at the hospital. And I find that a group of people that many don't give much thought to. I'm currently, I'm writing a charity patient safety project that I'm including 30 different voices in this book to bring together a group of people throughout the country to talk about patient safety and and healthcare safety, patient satisfaction. And as I'm talking with some of these contributors, I'm meeting many RNs who have quit nursing to become independent patient advocates. And I was just thinking how we talk about patient satisfaction. What about provider satisfaction? You know, if healthcare staff are supposed to do all they can to keep the patient satisfied but who's looking after doctors and nurses and the environmental oh. staff and
1: Hi, you're so st- And and yet, as an employer, we have the most opportunity to improve because we control all the levers. And what I mean by that is we control what benefit designs we give people. So at university hospitals, we just give our employees three free primary care visits a year. Why? Because we want to stay healthy at home. We control the incentives we give for our employees. So what incentives do they do for staying well, we control the incentives for our clinicians to incentivize them to keep our employees healthy, and then importantly, we control the programs that we're doing. And and under the programs, Pat, you know, there's three recent advances that are the most powerful impact on our health. And and let me begin because your point about not focusing on clinicians' well-being is key. Imagine I can tell you that you can take a pill and it would be the most potent thing to keep you thriving. It reduces your risk of cancer and heart disease. It reduces your risk of depression and dementia. It keeps you energetic, and it reduces your risk of a variety of other diseases. And the reality is we know that pill is you, that every one of us in the lifestyles and habits we have controls the vast majority of our health, and we don't often take advantage of that. The second advance, path is that we know exactly what behaviors keep us healthy, and we're trying to make sure our employees practice those behaviors. Those are nourish, that is the dose of healthy eating, move, the dose of exercise, refresh, the dose of self-care through sleep and meditation and self-compassion, connect, the dose of social connections, and prevent. Are you getting wellness and cancer screenings? And the third innovation or the advanced path is we know exactly how to form habits. We know the science of how habits form and how to engender them. And when you look across healthcare, as you said, Pat, the well-being of many of our clinicians and our employees is really lacking. Many of them don't have healthy habits. They, they may be overweight. They don't exercise. They don't give great self-care. And because they're often, they're so busy caring for others that they don't care for themselves. And we're really putting a coordinated effort to say, how do we make sure that our employees are as healthy as they can be so that they can live their life to the fullest and continue to give the great care that our patients receive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of obvious that if your healthcare staff is satisfied, they'd be better equipped to create satisfied patients. Let's take it a little bit deeper. We're talking about keeping them healthy personally. What about from a system standpoint where, you know, you see nurses working double shift or overtime and doctors having to see so many people in a short amount of time, what can be done maybe to adjust the system that or the culture that these physicians and nurses are working within to also create? a happier environment so that would then spread and spill over to the patient.
1: Yeah, so I've had great points and insightful, and your experience in safety is spilling over because you're right. This is a systems issue that we have to take a systems solution. And the way we think about it is kind of on three levels. There's no doubt there's intrapersonal things, you know, making sure they know how to eat healthy and and exercise. There's interpersonal things, which is the culture, so to make sure the teams on the unit self-support each other and recognize, you know, in many ways that their health and well-being has to come first because if they're not healthy, they can't give patients the care that the patients deserve and as you know uh, you know a distracted burnt out clinician is going to give bad uh, care and then there's the system things and there's a whole lot of things we need to do the first part Pat, is like so many problems is to begin to have a conversation about this to recognize that you know hey our clinicians are often suffering from burnout and we have to design systems uh, to do that A big part of the burnout, Pat, as you probably know, is the electronic health record. I mean, the the increase in burnout and the correlation with having clinicians use these technologies is just profound. It, It doesn't mean we didn't need to move healthcare to the digital space, but we did need to give our clinicians better technologies to, to uh, avoid that we need to look at as actually as you just said Pat uh, looking at how often they work double shifts and, and and how long those shifts are and making sure we put breaks in and that our staffing is sufficient so that clinicians have time to take breaks because so many clinicians say I just feel like I can't even go take a lunch break because I don't have time to, to leave my patient or I don't trust what's going to happen if I don't leave those patients and you know Pat y- your point about the culture is key and particularly in nurses I think we socialize them and acculturate them to be so caring that if they care for themselves, it almost risks compromising their identity as a clinician because they're brought up to be, I'm always giving, 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 and we don't, I don't believe message it enough about what they can do. I mean, the, the hopeful news, Pat, it's interesting, just yesterday, we hosted a conference with the deans of School of Nursing all around the um, Cleveland and greater area and had this discussion that we, that about exactly these points about well-being and self-care and what are we doing in our schools and in our hospitals and our health systems to make sure that we are making sure well-being is a top priority for this, that people have this knowledge that we create cultures where self-care is the norm. And expected and rewarded rather than, you know, denied, and making sure those structural things are in place
0: you mentioned the electronic medical records. I've been hearing so much about that from folks that I'm talking with to say that, yes, there are advantages to it, but as a patient, I know that anytime you put something between the clinician and the patient as in a physical computer, the lack of eye contact and the lack of human connection pretty much disappears.
1: Yeah, Pat, you know, and this is a fascinating development because <clears throat> no doubt we need to digitize healthcare. And the government made incentives to give financial rewards that to doctors' offices and hospitals to put these things in. And so many hospitals put them in largely for the reward, even though the Technology was clunky and clumsy, and it hurt productivity, and the usability was poor. But what that incentive did, in many ways, was it distorted markets. So the vendors stopped making them better because they had all the hospitals buying from them. And if you had to go buy it on the open market, nobody would pay for these things. The usability is so poor, and their functions just don't add that much value in their current state, and they haven't improved, and we're working to make them better. But the real brunt of that um, lack of usability has been on our clinicians who, you know, often spend extra hours every day trying to work with these technologies. And they're getting better slowly, um, but they should have been better, frankly, before we put them in the market. And, you know, the a big side effect of putting these in is the clinician well-being or the... Decrement in clinician well-being.
0: Absolutely, which which then trickles down to the patient. So it's um, correct. Yeah, a big problem. Um, so bottom line, did does the concept of provider incentivization does that improve quality of care? at any point in time? I mean, does it change behavior?
1: Really intriguing question, Pat, and we can do a whole hour on that. And there's, you know, when you think about incentives, Pat, there's two camps. There's what are called extrinsic rewards, which are economic incentives or um, largely economics, and then intrinsic rewards, drawing in upon professionalism and why we went into healthcare. Extrinsic motivations tend to work for more mechanical or Service line things where someone has a very mechanical task to do and you want to keep the production going on, on the the factory floor. They work much less well for knowledge work or things that are intrinsically rewarding. Indeed, there's pretty good data that if you take something that's intrinsically meaningful, like the privilege or the blessing of caring for a patient and give an economic incentive that you decrease the motivation because you convert it for something that's magical and meaningful to something that becomes more mechanical. So what's the empiric evidence? Well, the empiric evidence to date would say that pay for performance qualities. There's very little data that it improves uh, and, and this is incentives for individual clinicians. includes patient improves outcomes to any great extent. It improves processes a little. There's some data though that, and it the science hasn't been twee- teased out as much as it should. It does motivate health systems. You see, as you know, as a clinician, Pat. The barrier isn't that doctors and nurses don't care, which is what economic incentives are due, um, where are intended to motivate. We care deeply. The problem is we often work in broken systems. So I might not have those defects in care visible. I might not have the feedback of data to give me how I'm performing. I might not have the tools or the technologies to provide the best care possible. And these economic incentives. At the health system level create the incentives for health systems to invest in those tools and technologies and processes so that they could make those defects visible and provide the clinicians with the systems and management structures for them to provide the best care possible.
0: And what's interesting Peter though I think your average employee healthcare provider these economic incentives they're affecting the the system as a whole but the average person doesn't think oh if we don't get a good Hcap score for Mrs Smith then that's going to affect my bottom line it's, it's not like they're going to see anything you're, more you're, or you're less Exactly
1: right they HCAP scores are driven by the caring we provide and the scores follow. So it's not that you play to the test and try to get those scores up. HCAPs are we, the way um, the government and many other insurers measure patient experience.
0: Right, but as I'm saying, the provide it doesn't much matter to the provider. I wouldn't think at bedside to yeah, think, you, you, "Oh, am I going to do this?" Right. Yeah, they're,
1: yeah, they're invisible to these incentives yeah. for it's, the most part. Ex-
0: exactly, and that makes me want to talk briefly about the patient satisfaction surveys. I always wondered, you know, the patient gets this um, survey two to six weeks later. But their voice comes after the fact. is there any way to bring something more relevant so that when the issue is at hand it's dealt with or discussed or talked about rather than six weeks later?
1: point where you've really keen insights I mean you know, collecting the data and getting it getting fed back to us. We use uh, intently to monitor performance uh, on patient experience, and, and, and we it in our scores have improved quite dramatically. We use the comments, but no other industry waits six weeks to get feedback from their customers, right? They're immediate. I mean, they it may be the next day. It might be during the, the, the service. Uh, our health system, like many others, are looking at many, much more real-time ways to get this kind of feedback some of it is directly asking our the patients that we are serving questions about uh, you know when they're in care how do we do? Is there things we can do better? Doing exit interviews, so you know, how was your stay, and and you know, what could we have done to serve you better, or what what other needs did you have that weren't met? And as you, I'm sure, are aware, Pat, there's an explosion of social media, Yelp, and a variety of other tools that patients are on their own are just going to put real time feedback about their experiences with healthcare, and those are really growing quite rapidly.
0: Wow, so much to talk about with you. I have one more thought I want to ask share with you. So we talk about creating and fostering a climate to involve patients and families in safety efforts. And as I go speaking to people, I always ask folks, would you feel comfortable, say, to ask your physician to wash their hands before they touched you? And and nobody raises their hand. So my question is, Why are people afraid to speak up to their doctors? Why can't patients ask their doctors and nurses to wash their hands? Why can't there be a system that would allow a climate where the patients are supposed to be informed and educated and empowered instead of frightened and subservient. I'm just thinking about the power of the patient could actually improve patient safety outcomes. If maybe they had some kind of a, a class or a patient empowerment courses or going to surgery in two weeks, offer a class to say, here's what to what expect. Here's what infections could happen. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you could feel free to speak up about.
1: Yeah, Pat, that really insightful question and we've wrestled with this for so long because as you astutely said, when I speak with many, many patients and ask, you know, why don't you speak up? You, if you are afraid, you have questions, you see someone not do something and there's largely fear. They, they, they fear that the doctor might um, chastise them and, and it might not be right, well received. They fear especially if it 's a specialist that they can 't find that they would lose access to their doctor and they 're really fearful or if it 's a you know an area where there 's not many physicians and when I think about that pat like any communication it 's two sided we 're working aggressively with our physicians to make sure that they welcome and they're solicitous to questions. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. I think most physicians do, but there's certainly some, and you may have experienced it, who make it very clear that they don't want to be questioned. Or even if the patient wants to get a second opinion, which is a great way to reduce diagnostic errors, some clinicians are offended by that, right? And, And we have to work to elevate humility and get rid of the hubris on the on the clinician side. On the patient side, you're right. I love your idea. I hadn't thought of it. That bit of a boot camp or. Mm-hmm training to say you know it's your body you are the best steward of it and advocate for it and you know feel comfortable to ask questions and if the clinician really gets offended by it then you need to think if they really want them to be your doctor because there's a whole lot of risks that that kind of arrogance puts in place not just on this diagnosis but many things that you likely would be better off exploring you know Care somewhere else if that's available to you, and 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 you are the best steward of your body. You know what you feel. You you know what works in you, and being partners in in that care, I think we would make care a whole lot safer and less expensive and less complication-ridden if we would create that culture of collaboration. You know, it's interesting, Pat, you may have heard me say that when I reflect on the many years of safety research and quality of care, I've come to realize that the secret of high-quality care, of safe care, is love. And by love, I don't mean a 50-year marriage. By love, I mean what the psychologist Barbara Friedrichsen talks about in her book, Love 2.0, when she studies what makes oxytocin spike. It's the love or cuddle hormone. And what she found is that oxytocin spikes in micro moments of positive connection between people, Uh, micro moments. I feel warm towards you. You feel warm towards me and we generate positive energy and it spreads. And it's that kind of micro moment. It's that love between patients and their clinicians that is going to give us ultimately the safest care and will allow us to create the systems and make the changes that we need because this big change that we're embarking on to drive safety and quality and value is the sum of thousands of smaller ones and every one of those is facilitated by these micro
0: moments oh i love that i read that book too i thought that was an excellent excellent book so we need someone to prescribe us a dose of love right It's right.
1: That's the next prescription. Have a (laughs) dose of love today.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to share today?
1: No, it's it's an honor for me to be here, Pat. And um, I maybe mentioned to you, there's a talk I did on some of the stuff we're doing to spread love and value. That's on the City Club of Cleveland's website that I did. If people are interested, you might want to consider putting a link to it if people are so interested.
0: I did see that, and I will share that. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share some of your wisdom with us today. I so appreciate you, and we'll have to do this again sometime.
1: Great. And Pat, thanks for having me back. It's always a delight, and I hope to speak again soon.
0: Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known health care and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.